I want you to imagine with me for a moment about a time in a place that is preceded all of us. There's a story in the Gospels of a woman, a story about her restoration. It's the journey of one woman. We really don't have a name for her, but we are told that there was this point in time. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are on the streets about to witness what happens. Standing there minding your own business, maybe going about doing whatever you may be doing, grocery shopping, talking with friends, seeing family. And in the midst of that moment, there's an incredible ruckus. You will notice that there's a woman, barely clothed, all distraught, crying, being escorted by numerous men in a forceful manner. They're on a mission, and in the midst of that mission, they bring her to the feet of a rabbi, but not just any rabbi, the rabbi Jesus. They have an agenda. Their agenda is to expose her, but not only expose her, they are demanding justice according to the law. So the only one that can really deem justice on this woman and what she has done, this, this heinous crime that we're not yet sure she has committed, the only one that can deem justice would be a rabbi. And so they take her to Rabbi Jesus and they throw her at his feet. She was caught in adultery. Ripped from the clutches of her adulterous lover's arms. The crime was heinous, scandalous, brought out into the public immediately. We know how we can solve this problem. If we just get her before Rabbi Jesus, he will bring justice for sure. The justice that we deserve. And so they bring this broken woman, emotionally and mentally broken, and they cast her before the feet of Jesus. And they look and they say to him, Rabbi, what would you do with her? The response of Rabbi Jesus is so amazing. He doesn't respond verbally, but he responds physically. He reaches down into the ground and he begins to write with his finger. Now, we don't know what he was really writing. It doesn't really say. Some people say that he was writing the sins of those of her accusers. Some of them say he was writing the law of the Ten Commandments. There, there's so many different things that they say. But here's what's so amazing. Jesus says to them, he just utters this statement so powerfully, and he says, for those of you who have not yet sinned, then you cast the first stone. And the word tells us that from oldest to youngest, each one of them began to drop their stones. Because according to law, because she committed adultery, she should be stoned to death. And so they begin to drop their stones one by one until no one is left. Because everyone has sinned. And in the midst of her journey, 
Jesus looks at this woman who committed adultery, and he says to her, go and sin no more. He restores her. This morning, the message, the story that you are about to hear, I, I've been praying about this all week. And I even told Jerry before, uh, before we started this morning, I believe that this message carries a divine authority on it. I believe that this morning, this message will carry a power of transformation if we allow it to in our hearts. But I want us to understand that this morning, as she comes to speak about the restoration of her life personally and what Jesus has done, I want us to break out of the molds of our minds and realize that all of us have areas in our lives that need restored, just like the woman who is committing adultery. That maybe Jerry's story, you say, well, I'm glad that witnesses with those people over there or these people here, and I'm glad that that witnesses with that, but, but that's, not, that's not what witnesses with me, so I don't need restoration today. Oh, 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 don't limit the Holy Spirit this morning. Because I believe that the divine word that God has given to Jerry this morning carries a weight on it that will bring restoration into our marriages, into broken relationships, into habits that we have not overcome. So this morning, I am asking that we would be fully attentive to what Jerry has to say. Would you please welcome Jerry Pistone? Just two months ago, at the end of May, I spoke to a group of 200 women at Real Life Assembly of God. It was the, really the first time that I had ever spoken my story to a group that size. Debbie Grove, who had invited me to speak, she had just a hint of what my story was about, and she felt that it had to be told. Well, I had felt that way for many years, but I knew that the timing was critical, that it had to be God's timing, not mine. And I believe, as Jason said, that this is that divine moment. This is the time. My palms were sweaty in May. I had a catch in my throat. My heart skipped a beat and my stomach flipped. And I'll tell you what, it's doing the same thing right now. It's because I'm fully aware, as I was then, that I'm speaking to so many of you who know me very, very well. I'm speaking to many of you whose children I had in Sunday school, in children's church. Many of you entrusted your child to my care. I was a daisy leader for 11 years. I love those children so well. Some of you called my husband and I your life group leaders. And some of you shared this stage with me for passion plays and Christmas musicals. It's humbling to share a very deep and sensitive part of me that has been hidden for many, many years. And it makes me feel very vulnerable. 
but I am fully convinced that God has charged me to do so. And that Satan is very angry that I have the boldness to do so. My challenge today is this. How do I frame 35 years in 35 minutes? Here's my best attempt. My dad was a candy maker. Can you even imagine growing up in a home with a real live candy man? <laughs> my dad's business uh, was a full-fledged operation of peanut brittle production creamy fudge, peanut butter cups, chocolate fountains, chocolate bunnies, jelly beans, and the list goes on. My dad worked very hard at a business that he started and a business that he loved. Every day, at the end of the day, he'd arrive home around 6 o'clock and find dinner ready. And at 7 o'clock, he would retire to the green plaid couch in the den and manually turn on the television set for the seven o'clock news. And that's when I would wander in. And if he'd hear me coming, and if I was lucky, he'd have a nickel hidden in his hand because he had me convinced that I had a nickel tree growing somewhere in here and I'd produce a nickel every once in a while from my ear. The, day, the smell of the days were still, or the day was still fresh on my dad. It was kind of a mix and a mingling of old spice and chocolate. And it was a very good smell indeed. As I lay there next to my dad, it was very easy to hear the rhythm of his heart, along with the slow rise and fall of his chest. But what should have been a comforting sound to me was actually just the opposite, because what I would do is I would take my little hand and I'd slip it over my heart, and, and I would hear the rhythm of my heart. His was thump, 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 and mine was thump, 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 thump. And I thought, wait a minute, something's really wrong here. I was about eight years old, and I thought, all hearts must beat the same, right? Especially if you're related. I mean, come on, this was my dad, and our heartbeats didn't match. And his breathing was so slow and so rhythm rhythmic, and mine was so rapid. So I would try to slow my breathing down only to hyperventilate and get myself in a panic and so I'd quietly excuse myself until the next time and run off and distract myself. But you know what? I really, really wanted to be there beside my dad. I wish that I could tell you that as a little girl I knew Jesus. But the truth is that God's name was spoken rarely in my home, except for grace at dinner, or bedtime prayers that were always, always the same. And sadly, when God's name was spoken, it was often carelessly and in vain. But that story about my dad's heartbeat, it would speak volumes to me later on in life when I did come to know Jesus. 
when his name was more than grace at dinner or a bedtime prayer. And God showed me that indeed our hearts should beat the same. They should be synchronized. The rhythms should match my father's and mine. And so today, when I pray, God, give me the desires of your heart, that they would become the desires of my heart. I have this incredible, indelible memory of a little girl's head resting on her her father's chest, listening to the rhythm of his heart. Well, this scrawny eight year old and awkward little girl somehow became 16 overnight. And in spite of some rough middle school years, I made it to high school and to the age of 16 looking fairly normal, maybe even good. And I'm not sure how because I certainly struggled at 13 and 14 and 15 with body image. I had a very well-meaning aunt who told me at the age of 13 that it looked like I was going to be stout. And I found out that meant fat. And so for the two-hour ride from Millville, New Jersey, up to Freehold, New Jersey, this little 13-year-old rehearsed over and over and over in her mind, I will not be fat. I will not be fat. And I began a starvation campaign that lasted for years. And you know, and you do know this, that the power of words are so incredible. They have the power to bless. They have the power to curse. Words have the power to bring life or death. Anorexia is a very subtle deception, and it would hide itself and lie dormant for a while, only to rear its ugly head later. And looking back, these words of Jesus make so much sense to me. The thief comes. It does not come except to steal and destroy and to kill. The thief does not come except to kill and to steal and to destroy. Those words make so much sense. But for now, For the time that I had just entered into high school and was 16 years old, things looked good. My acne had cleared. My figure had returned. I was a cheerleader. I was in the drama club. I took music lessons. And the boys were looking. I was on top of my game. But what appeared to others and felt to me like the time of my life was actually the beginning of a season marked by such great and grievous sin that it would impact the rest of my life monumentally. I want to jump ahead for a minute and tell you where I am today, and many of you who know me well know exactly where I am today. This past April, my husband Dennis and I celebrated 34 years of marriage. By the time we had been married eight years, we had three children. And they are all now grown and married themselves. Our oldest daughter, Erica, 
her husband Steve, and their two, well, my two granddaughters live here in Erie. Our second son, Joseph, and his wife, Sarah, live in Kansas City, way too far away. And they are expecting their first child in December. And our third, and I will say this until the day I die, my baby, Michael, is married to his beautiful wife, Crystal, and they live in Cincinnati. And those of you in this room who do know us well and who have followed our journey, you also know of our Colombian daughter, Claudia, our Polish daughter, Angela, and our African daughter, Prisca. Psalm 127.5 says, Happy is the man whose quiver is full. And I will tell you that our quiver is full. But the greatest news is that all my children are here today, and they all love and serve Jesus well. I met Dennis at Slippery Rock, then State College, at a fraternity party. Imagine that. He, should, he shouldn't have been there. He should have known better. He had been brought up in a Christian home. But Dennis was not currently living for Christ. I, on the other hand, had no idea what a relationship with Jesus looked like. And so being at a fraternity party, for me, was a great place to meet new people. Long story, very short, Dennis blew me a kiss that night, and I caught it. We dated, we fell in love, and he, out of conviction, noting the seriousness of our relationship, decided he had better throw in that Jesus part. That part that had been emphasized to him as a child, that part that had been a huge part of his family, and it had been lived by him but not fully understood by him, or embraced by him. In essence, Dennis knew about Jesus, but he was not in a viable relationship with Jesus. So in those early days of dating, his conviction took me to his church, First Assembly of God, 32nd in Liberty. And another long story, very short, the Lord got a hold of this girl's heart in what I love to call a Saul to Paul Damascus Road experience. The Lord got a hold of my heart, and my eyes were opened. It's as if a curtain were drawn, and this 21-year heart was ablaze for Jesus. But there was a problem. You see, there was this chunk of time, a time in high school a time where I was involved in several physical and emotional relationships. But one very significant relationship. A relationship that convinced two teenagers that they should be married. And the ring was bought, and the date was set, and my gown was chosen. But except for exceptions, teenage hearts and minds are not equipped or mature enough to deal with the complexity of what we had gotten ourselves into. We had lived carelessly, recklessly, 
lustfully, and completely void of boundaries. What we perceived and believed was committed love did not withstand the test. And I'm not going to lie. It was a tearful and emotional parting of our ways. And with us went a boatload of overweight baggage. Baggage that I stuffed in a closet when I met Dennis and I just unpacked enough. Enough to satisfy him because really a little bit of truth was almost too much for even me to bear. And we got married and we had three kids and everything looked perfect. So perfect, in fact, that we were affectionately labeled by some the TV family. Imagine that. But that closet, that place that held my baggage, I would go there often and I would unpack some memories and photos and events by myself. I needed to reminisce, I needed to reflect, I needed to try and make sense to fit my past somehow into my present. And because it was my stuff, not Dennis's, I felt I had to go there alone. And on those few occasions when I would try to share something, I would feel tension from him and jealousy. He tells me today it was hurt, but I perceived it as anger, and so I would quickly stuff that stuff back in the closet. Finally, one day, after being married for probably 15 years, I felt so unsettled with that segment of time and with those secrets. Bottom line, I was unhappy. I know what I'll do, I thought. I'll write. I love to write. Some people write songs. I write. I write poetry. I'll write. And I'll take those words and I'll put them on paper. That will be my outlet and surely it will release some guilt and put words to my feelings and my pain and maybe, just maybe, Dennis or somebody will see what I've written and ask me about it. And at the same time that I started to write, I contacted the Women's Care Center right here in Erie, Pennsylvania. It was like I was on a private, silent, mini campaign to heal myself. I would be my own psychologist. Brenda Newport was and still is the executive director of the Women's Care Center. I would volunteer my time. That's what I would do. I would counsel women in crisis, but really all I wanted to do was just tell my story. That chunk of four to five years in high school and shortly after. But before Brenda would have me counsel others, I would have to attend a counseling session with her. And it was this woman who God used to give me hope. And if you listen carefully to the words in this poem that I will share with you of sorts, you'll hear that part where Brenda's wisdom comes in, where Brenda gives me an assignment. And how that assignment would bring some healing to my past, I emphasize the word some, because at that time, it was as much as I would allow. The title of the poem is 16. 
She was 16, very sweet and very innocent. Her body felt new to her, ripened somehow when she hadn't been looking, but she liked it, she admired it, and life seemed pleasant from her point of view. Life seemed pleasant indeed. He noticed her first and they talked. They talked and they talked and they touched. And like young little children, when everything's new, they didn't suspect what a kiss could do. And innocence hid in the closet in shame. For delight seemed much greater and warmer and brighter than promises earlier spoken. And her eyes were exposed and the world seemed to change and a shadow cast gray on her heart. And the laughter died down and their joy disappeared and a shadow cast gray on her heart. And secrets and tears and unspoken fears choked her and swelled up inside. And her baby, her baby grew there. She cherished that child and gave her a name, but knew there was no way to keep her for shame. And a typical day when the autumn sun rose, her final decision was made, and her emptiness felt like a tomb. And the secret was wrapped and hidden within where innocence once used to be. Nourished by anguish, it grew. It grew and it grew and it grew. Now pregnant with grief, she labored and birthed a hideous monster of guilt. And he haunted her day after day. And he taunted her soul with remorse and despair. And the darkness seemed too much to bear. And she couldn't find rest, and she couldn't find peace. And she didn't know which way to turn. But there was a day, and on that one day, she traveled way back to her youth. And in her mind's eye, she retrieved from her womb a tender and precious young life. And she let herself hold her, and hold her, and hold her. And she called her sweet baby by name, and sang her a song from the depths of her soul, which was more like lament from her soul. And her heart broke in pieces, the years tumbled before her. She remembered each detail so clearly, and she sorrowed and wept and confronted her choice. She confronted her choice at last. And then, like a mother would, ever so carefully, she tenderly gave her to Jesus placed her deliberately there in his arms, there in the safe arms of Jesus. And there was forgiveness just like a river, just like a strong rushing river. And her, her pain was replaced with an unexplained joy, and her journey to wholeness began. The story of my abortion, so painful was it to write, that I had to use the third person and say she instead of I. I had finally come to a place where I had admitted my sin and actually embraced my child, giving her back to Jesus as Brenda had led me to do. It was a first step, and for now, all I could bear. The years passed, my children grew, high school, college, and beyond. And a gnawing crept up in me again, a gnawing from the Lord. 
for there was yet unfinished business. And just like the Lord so often does, a God who pursues, who goes after us, he took me to a place that would complete the healing that I desperately needed. It was August of 2008. My husband, my son Mike, and his then fiance Crystal, and Angela attended the call in Washington, D.C. The calls are solemn assemblies of sometimes hundreds of thousands of people who fast and pray for justice issues. The ending of abortion is always a huge emphasis. At some point in that long day, I left our blanket and I walked through the throngs of people just to stretch. And I walked a city block or two towards the Capitol building there in Washington, D.C. And because of the magnitude of the event, there are different organizations set up all over. They have information on child slavery, sex trafficking, pornography, abortion, you name it. You can find help. You can find prayer. You can buy buttons and T-shirts, and the list goes on. As I looked across the street to the lawn of the Capitol, I saw what looked like a display, but maybe not. It actually looked to me like litter strewn across the lawn. But wait, there was a huge banner. I got closer and I read the number 3,500 in life-size print. 3,500 babies aborted every day in the United States. And then, to make that number real, what were supposed to be 3,500 pair of little shoes dotted the lawn, I stood there for a moment, frozen, when a young woman came over to me to further explain that although they had attempted to get 3,500 pair of shoes, there were only about half that number there. And I said, that's okay. There's really quite enough here. I get it. Actually, way too much. And there were way too many pink and white and blue little satin shoes. And my heart was overwhelmed. And I wept. That was the moment the moment on the Capitol lawn in Washington, D.C., on a summer day in August of 2008, a day that found me standing in the midst of a thousand pair of little shoes, shoes that represented the lives of the aborted babies, my babies. There, I said it. Another woman came up and saw me crying and put her arm around me as if she knew. And although she was a stranger, she was anointed and appointed by God to meet me there. And it was to that stranger that I confessed the whole of my sin. I had three abortions. Three. A word and a number that I could never bring to my lips. One abortion is horrible. Two abortions is deplorable, but three is unthinkable. 
The secret was so dark and ugly that hiding it was the only thing I knew today to do. Why couldn't my confession of one abortion cover all three? And my poem, my poem that had taken months to write and every ounce of energy and emotion I could muster, how could I gather any more words to recognize and name and eulogize a second child or a third? That woman held me, she understood, and she asked me if I wanted to choose three pair of shoes and write something like the others had all over this lawn where tags attached to little shoes with words like, my dear little baby, I am so sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. Please forgive me. Love, Mommy. And I said, no, I can't do that right now. I needed to, but I had to process it. So I ran, and I got Dennis, and I brought him to the shoes, and that was the place that now together our real healing began. For the first time in our marriage of 30 years, he held me and cried with me over the babies. And he was truly as sorrowful as I was. At home the next day, Dennis came to me and held me again, and he said these words, Jerry, the Lord has been speaking to me. I see things differently now. As your husband, and because we are one flesh, I want you to know that I love your children as if they were my own. And with your permission, I would like to adopt them. Can I even begin to tell you the power that truth has? Truth invades darkness. Truth exposes lies. Truth brings life. Do you see what my husband did? His position as husband and leader gave him the authority over my past. I was like Gomer. He was like Hosea. He took and owned my past as his. And in a way like Hosea, he brought me, he bought me back. And suddenly and very literally, I felt the weight of my past fall off. I was completely released. And for the first time in some 31 years, I tasted restoration. You see, long before that day, I knew God's forgiveness. I had long ago accepted the outrageous cost of forgiveness, the cost of his son, Jesus. I got that part. But the freedom, the real freedom I did not have, not until I honestly released the whole of my sin, which allowed God to move on Dennis's heart and then bring restoration actually to both of us. Luke 7, 47, and I make this scripture my own. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to me, Jerry, your sins are forgiven. Do you know what? After that day, I did not need to go back to my closet and look through my old baggage. Do you know why? There was nothing there. I was restored, completely whole, completely forgiven, completely free. Restoration came when I intentionally called my sin what it was. And when I recognized my pregnancies, all three 
for what they were, children. And it was at that moment that I felt a tangible retreat and defeat from Satan, the hater of truth. He could not stand in the face of it. He lost his grip on me. And my relationship with Dennis changed too. There was nothing between us anymore. It was no longer my past. It was our past, our story. The final step was to take our story to our children and their spouses. And we did. And as I handed them each a pair of shoes, to remind them of the brother or the sister that they would meet one day. They shared my sorrow and they gave me unconditional love and support well beyond their years. That last step was by far the hardest. You see, moms innately protect life fiercely. My daughter-in-law, Sarah, who is pregnant with their first, She's so careful. She's so careful to protect the baby in her womb that has been entrusted to her. That's what moms do. I know because I'm the mom who is pretty sure that I could have lifted a car off any one of my kids if they were trapped under it. Moms are not supposed to take the lives of their children. That last step was the hardest. And by the grace of God, the tears that you see me shed today will never dry. I have asked the Lord to never let them dry. I have asked the Lord to increase them according to the measure of his grief over the tragedy of abortion. You remember the story about my dad. That's really all I want from my heavenly father, to have my heart beat with his to be in sync with my heavenly father, to breathe in harmony. I wanted, uh, my desire is to delight over the things that delight his heart and to grieve over the things that grieve his heart. Forgiven, absolutely. Restored completely. But please, Lord, never dry my tears. So that's it. My story. It's the raw unedited, truthful version. I thought for years that details in our past didn't always need to be shared, especially those things that were done before we knew Jesus. I agree. I didn't share those parts. I've left those details out. But three children are not details. They are lives, eternal beings knit together fearfully and wonderfully by my creator. Before I step down and Jason comes up, I do need to say one more thing. Abortion hurts. Obviously, it hurts the unborn. It is violent. It is horrific. It is the unnatural ending of a human life. That's the truth. Abortion hurts society. We have lost millions of doctors, scientists, teachers, 
leaders, evangelists, brothers and sisters, and neighbors and friends. Abortion hurts women, women like me who were told that abortion is safe, affordable, and sterile. It's my body. I have the right to choose to do with it whatever I want. The truth is, abortion hurts. And finally, abortion hurts men. Men who regret that they encouraged an abortion, participated by financing an abortion, or had no say in the abortion, and feel a deep loss over the death of a child they never knew. My sole purpose today was to come to you as one who knows the reality of what abortion does and to expose the lies and the schemes of the enemy who does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I offer no condemnation, but to those of you who in this room who understand my story and have been there yourself, I will promise to walk beside you and give you the same opportunity I had on that day in Washington, D.C., on the Capitol lawn. It was the day that marked a new beginning, a day that restored me to my rightful place as a child of the living God. Thank you. standing. Don't get too comfortable. I'm going to ask those who uh, were asked to, to minister today if you would just come up and, and uh, make your way up here. After listening to Jerry's story and her life testimony, I'm sure that there in a congregation like this, there are some of you here that you can relate to this, male or female. But I just don't want to limit it to that this morning. There's some of us here, I'm sure, that we look at our marriages and we yearn for restoration, the way God restored Jerry. Maybe there's a relationship between family members, brother, sister, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, whatever that may be, that we're longing for that same restoration that Jerry had received. Restoration can go a long way, and I don't have to stand here and name topic after topic. But one thing when Jerry said this, she said, when I intentionally called my sin what it was. This morning, we're going to have an opportunity to just be real with ourselves inwardly and intentionally call what it is that God wants to restore in our lives. We're just going to continue this time, and if you still want to be ministered to, there's plenty of time here. Also, we understand uh, that this subject is very sensitive, and so Dennis and Jerry want you to know that if, if that is you and, and you just say, I just need time alone 
with somebody who understands this. They want to make themselves available to you as well, that you can get a hold of them personally. They would want to make time with you, to spend time with you and invest into you and talk with you. So please understand that that, that is open as well. Regarding any other issue that, that you may say, I need restoration in our church office is available as well to walk with you through that. Let me pray for you and just want to encourage you if you, if you need time, this is open. Father God, this morning, we just thank you for the power of restoration. We thank you that Jesus has extended that to us, Lord, individually and together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jerry's journey and her testimony, God, of the restoration of her life, as well as her family and her husband. Father, we, we just thank you, God, for what you have put within her to carry among others, Lord God, to remind them, God, that there is hope and there is restoration through you. Father, I pray for the rest of us this morning, God, that, Father, those areas of our lives that we are just yearning for restoration for, I pray that there would just be a freedom within us to intentionally call it what it is and let go and allow you to minister to our hearts and bring complete freedom. Father, I just thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy and, Lord, how you extend that to us continuously. And, Lord, how you call us back to you each and every time. Lord, I pray that you will protect what you have done here. I pray that you will protect what you're going to do. And, Father, I pray that as we leave here today, you will lead us and direct us by your Holy Spirit as we go throughout our weeks. Lord, let us not be afraid to carry this message to our friends and our family and also in our workplaces, God that you may be glorified and exalted, and that many will be restored. We love you, Jesus. In the mighty name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Have a great day.